Well, good morning, Skillman family. Today we are beginning a new sermon series that will lead us through the final weeks of this season of the year that we have called Advocate Hope. But this series, we hope, is also a stepping stone for us into the last stage of the year. And during that season, we're going to focus on being known by love. But not just any kind of love. We want to talk about distinctly Christian love. And this is really important to me because we're living in mad days right now. I mean, we really are, aren't we? Think about the things that, we're, that we have going on right now in the world around us. Uh, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, and it has increasingly more and more halted our way of life here. And, and for many of us, uh, we, we've had to learn a whole new normal. And, and not just here, but in most places worldwide, this global pandemic is affecting people everywhere. And on top of that, there's varying degrees of information uh, that have some of us convinced that this virus is, is very dangerous, whereas other people uh, don't think it is as dangerous as, as people talk about it being. I mean, some people are afraid to even leave their homes, and other people are out and about uh, living life just like they were before all of this began. And if that weren't enough, during the midst of all this, we've also seen a social movement begin in our country for equity and justice, where people have risen up uh, to, to help men and women of color, people of color, uh, to, to help them experience just treatment from the systems that our society has in place. And not just just treatment, but also to take a look at the systems that are at work. How, how are the power dynamics working in things like law enforcement or in the criminal justice system? Even in this, we're divided to the point where some people are willing to say the phrase Black Lives Matter, but others view this as wrong and threatening to their way of life in, in, in the way that they believe that all lives matter. And of course, the truth is that both statements by themselves are technically true and technically correct. But when we're in conversation, we can't, uh, we can't even hear one another. It's just one group shouting back at the other and the other responding in kind with very little being truly accomplished. As if that wasn't enough by itself, there are many of us uh, in, in this church and in our city and all over the world who are small business owners or who have economically been been. Uh, experiencing difficult times. This is troubling times for us right now. And, and people are looking for hope in the coming days so that our livelihoods aren't taken away from us. Others have had the, not only the threat of losing their job, but they have actually lost their job or, or maybe money from their retirement accounts. And, and continually, day by day, we are disrupted and our lives are challenged. One more thing, too. In the past couple of months, uh, or in the, in the next couple of months, we'll have an election uh, that's going to go all the way up to the highest offices in this country. And I had a friend of mine comment recently, and this kind of scared me. He said, I hope that our country doesn't even entertain the thought of a civil war. And I truly do hope that that is far away from the realm of possibility. But I think that fear, that statement does help to highlight the fact that our political discourse has reached frightening levels of discord, disgust, and disillusionment with everyone that's involved. And it's into this kind of context that we believe that our church, our community, this community of faith has been called to advocate hope to our world and now to be known by love as well. So how on earth are we going to do that? Well, the good news is that the good news has something to say about all of this. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And when Jesus taught that prayer, it was not an innocent prayer. It was not an innocuous prayer. It's a deeply revolutionary prayer. It's countercultural. 
In fact, it's prayers like this and actions that Jesus will take later on in his ministry that will lead the Roman Empire to conclude that they would rather execute Jesus than allow him to keep living. Jesus' life and his message directly threatened the political, economic, social, and even the religious way of life of the ancient world. And if we're honest, they continue to do so today, too. In fact, it's not just Jesus' life and and, and the message that he preached, but it's his death and his resurrection that even more so uh, challenge the powers that are at work in this world. The powers that be did not know that at the, the time, Jesus would rise. And if they did, they might have chosen not to kill Jesus on a Roman cross at all. Now, I know that this can be difficult to hear for some of us because we've been, we have believed and been taught that Christianity is about personal salvation for our sins, that, that we would have our consciences cleared and that we would then get to enjoy the gift of eternal life in heaven with God. And, and while that may be true, it's not the whole truth. And I would ask that today that you would bear with me as we listen to a, a, a reading of the gospel anew, as we hear the words of Jesus, the life of Jesus, speak to us freshly and newly. And I think that when we hear this message from Jesus, we are likely to be challenged. And we are likely to begin to see how God's plan for the world is not just about bringing good people to heaven, but how it is the cosmos changing, death to life raising, good creation restoring power of life, message, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in the Gospels, Jesus has a a number of favorite topics, and he returns to these topics over and over again. One of these topics is the kingdom of God. Another one is the concept of the the God of money, uh, the issue of money, just the fact that money exists. And, And did you know that the kingdom of God is the number one thing that Jesus spoke about during his life? And not only that, but Jesus spoke about money second. Jesus gets into conversations also with the religious leaders about what what does it mean to be true worshipers? And what is the proper interpretation of the law? And so Jesus ends up spending a lot of time on religious topics as well. And finally, Jesus spends the majority of his ministry upending the social customs of his day, finding them inhibiting to the message of the kingdom of heaven and burdensome for the people who claim to be God's chosen people. All four of these topics are vital to the life and ministry of Jesus. Politics, economics, religion, and culture, as we experience it through our social customs. And the truth is that all of them can be included in the title that Jesus gives to this political discourse. He chooses to call it the kingdom of God, or in another gospel, the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus uses that word kingdom 116 times in all four of the Gospels. If we were to divide that out equally to all four Gospels, that would mean that Jesus uses the word kingdom 29 times in each Gospel. Now, of course, when Jesus uses it, he doesn't use it quite this this way. He doesn't even it out between all four Gospels, and he doesn't even it out between all the chapters. But for our purposes this morning, I think that this should tell us something. Because on average, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as opposed to the kingdoms of this world, at least one time per chapter, and maybe even as many as two times per chapter throughout all four Gospels. Not only that, but Jesus and the authors of the New Testament even described the ministry of Jesus in terms that were used by the Roman Empire to further the people's allegiances to mighty Rome. 
I mean, think about the word for kingdom itself. It's the Greek word basileia. It's the word used for the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire. Even the word that we use to talk about the gospel, uh, good news, euangelion. It was an imperial pronouncement that described when an heir to the emperor had been born or, or perhaps when a distant battle had been won by the Roman, by the Roman army. Another title that they used for, for the emperor uh, who, who lived in Rome was son of God, a title that Jesus takes for himself. Even the word that we use today for the gathering of people who believe in the, in the person of Jesus, church, comes from the, the Greek word ekklesia. And it was really used to describe a public assembly, almost like a town hall meeting. The word Lord, the Greek word Kyrios, it describes a master or a ruler. But Jesus adopts this title as his own as well. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus adopts and he uses this imperial language to describe who he is and what he's doing. So who is Jesus and and what exactly is he doing? What is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Well, maybe the easiest way to describe it might be that the kingdom of God is what God intended for creation to be all along. A place of purity and peacefulness between creation and creator, where relationship can thrive and grow, where the earth bears good fruit that provides for all of God's creatures. It's a place where there is no hurt or pain, where there's no injustice, there's no sin. In this kingdom, death has no foothold. Cancer is defeated. In fact, the only poverty to be found at all is a poverty of hatred and division. Instead, there's only the characteristics of God that have been given and shared with each one of us. Characteristics like compassion, charity, gentleness, peacefulness, and humility. You see, it's in the kingdom of God that life is able to flourish for all of God's creation. Jesus says that this kingdom is like finding a treasure and being filled with joy. In Matthew 13, verse 44. In Luke 15, verse 9, Jesus says it's like a woman who had lost a coin, but then she finds it and she celebrates. It's also like a tiny seed that grows and grows and grows until it is a tree large and strong enough to house the birds of the sky. In Luke 13, verse 19. And of course, this utopia sounds wonderful. It sounds heavenly. And we wonder who on earth wouldn't want something like it? Who could oppose this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God? But the truth is that the story of scripture tells us, and in fact, the story of our own lives tell us that over and over again, we choose a different kingdom. We choose the kingdoms of this earth, the kingdoms that are based on the power that we can wield. See, to see and find out how we can rule over one another. The kingdoms that use economics to profit the haves at the expense of the have-nots. The kingdoms that deny life to some while privileging others. The kingdoms that convince us that religion should stay in its own box and it dare not spill out into the domains of these other kingdoms. And see, this is one of the most difficult things for us in our time and our age to hear. Because when we hear kingdom language, we are taught, we are trained to separate that from the religious world that we occupy. We are taught to keep politics and religion separate, 
church and state apart from one another. But that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a vastly different way of being and living in the world. It offers a different way of politics to us, a different way of economics, a different way of understanding society and culture, even a different way of participating in religion. Where the kingdoms of this world rule through power and might, Jesus rules through suffering and humility. Where the kingdoms of this world dominate, coerce, and subjugate, Jesus instead invites, heals, and blesses. Where the kingdoms of this world are focused upon getting what's mine or or what's due to me, Jesus instead tells us about the kingdom of heaven where God provides for our daily needs. The kingdom of heaven has come, says Jesus. And it's putting the kingdoms of this world on notice. Their time is coming to an end, and the reign of the kingdom of God is come on earth. King Jesus is not like all those other kings, emperors, rulers, or even presidents. King Jesus is the true king, and he has come to announce the true kingdom. And here's the crazy thing about it, church. It works. This kingdom, the way of of being that Jesus invites us into, it works. The way of empire and domination and force, they ultimately all fail and fall short. Those kingdoms will come and go. They will fall away. But the kingdom of heaven endures. You see, if anybody would have guessed whether the mighty Roman Empire, an empire that stretched across nearly all of the known world, if anybody could have guessed that that empire would be outlasted by a group of fishermen, tax collectors, and women, some of whom had questionable reputations, And they were all from this tiny corner of the world known as Judea and Galilee. And it was only really truly important because of the routes that it provided for trade between Asia, Europe, and Egypt. You see, that person, the person who could have guessed that, they would have been laughed out of any room ever. And yet, that's exactly what happened. A group of fishermen and tax collectors, uh, people who are on the margins of society, who were outcasts, they are the people who outlasted the mighty Roman Empire. And it's the story that has happened over and over again throughout all of history. Empires like Assyria and Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Great Britain, even the United States, they will all come and go. But the kingdom of heaven just keeps going. Because Jesus is the true king. And he has come announcing the true kingdom. Perhaps many of you will remember the story about the emperor's clothes. It's a tale that is often told to children to teach them humility and wisdom. But I think, too, that it contains a lesson about the kingdoms of this world. The story basically goes like this. There were two travelers, uh, and these travelers are really grifters, and they enter into a new kingdom, and they come to the emperor to tell him that they can weave him the finest clothes that anyone has ever seen. Well, of course, the emperor accepts their gracious offer and he sets them to work. And he gives them time and he gives them resources. But as these two travelers begin their work, they set up their looms and they begin to weave and weave and weave, all the while using no thread. And so day by day, the emperor's attendants come to check on their progress. And not wanting to sound or feel foolish or to insult these travelers who have come with their gracious offer to the the emperor, They report back to him that the project is in good condition. 
even though all along they're unable to see any work being done at all. And so finally, the day comes for the emperor to wear his new clothes before the whole kingdom. And he plans a parade where the citizens will come out and see him wearing these magnificent clothes throughout his entire kingdom. And in fact, the travelers, they even make a show of putting on these invisible clothes for the emperor. And then he begins to parade before all of his subjects. You see, the kingdoms of this world are put on notice by Jesus. And just like in this story, the kingdoms of this world begin to feel foolish. We begin to see how empty and hollow they truly are. And just as the emperor goes before his people, truly wearing nothing, thinking that he is magnificent and wonderfully clothed, the empires, the kingdoms of this world are empty. The true kingdom, the one that is being inaugurated by Jesus, we begin to see how all the other kingdoms of this world are truly foolish. How they are exposed for their nothingness. How they make grand promises that they cannot ultimately keep. Their way falls utterly short. But the kingdom of God just keeps going. Over the next several weeks, we're going to continue to explore this kingdom come on earth. We're going to look at the ways and and try to discuss how this true kingdom affects our lives and how it's not just related to our salvation alone, although it does include that, but also how this kingdom changes our actions and perceptions in the world around us. How this kingdom truly brings hope to a world gone mad. But for today, allow me to say this as a summons to living with hope. For Matthew 5, verses 13 through 15. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand, and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. This week, go being salt and light.